episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akhil Amar, as always. And today we have uh, a special guest, uh, Professor Edward J. Larson. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Professor Larson before Akhil and Ed get into the discussion. Um, Ed holds the uh, Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law and is University Professor of History at Pepperdine University. He uh, received his PhD from University of Wisconsin-Madison in the History of Science and a law degree from Harvard. And he's also taught at various law schools in addition to Pepperdine, including uh, Stanford Law School, University of Melbourne, University of Georgia, Leiden University, and he was also the chairman of the history department. So you're seeing a pattern here of his um, multiple areas of expertise. Um, he also had served as counsel uh, for the U.S. House of Representatives uh, at some at, at one point, uh, and also practiced law uh, privately in Seattle. He's received several uh, honorary degrees. He's the recipient of the Pulitzer Prize in History and lots of other awards. I'm not going to go into in detail here. He's actually been the author of uh, 14 books and over 100 published articles. Uh, his 2015 book, The Return of George Washington, Uniting the States, 1783-1789, uh, is of particular interest to us. And that book actually resulted in him uh, being invited to deliver the 2016 Supreme Court Historical Society lecture in Washington, uh, the lecture uh, at Mount Vernon and at the Library of Congress, all on uh, this book. Meanwhile, uh, he's also written extensively on the history of science, including books about Antarctica, An Empire of Ice, Scott Shackleton, and the Heroic Age of Antarctic Science. Uh, another book on the founding era, uh, Magnificent Catastrophe, the Tumultuous Election of 1800, and his Pulitzer Prize was awarded for Summer for the Gods, the Scopes Trial, and America's Continuing Debate over Science and Religion. Ed is also a well-known ethicist and served on a panel of the National Institute of Health's study section for ethical, legal, and social issues of the Human Genome Project. He appears frequently on television, radio, internet, cable media, including uh, The Daily Show, The Today Show, uh, BBC, The History Channel, C-SPAN, CNN, etc. Currently, he and Professor Amar are teaching, co-teaching a course uh, at the Yale Law School. So welcome to America's Constitution, Professor Ed Larson. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. You've written uh, quite a variety of books. I see in your, of course, in your educational background that you had not only, uh, you know, a JD from the Harvard Law School, but also your PhD in the history of science from the University of Wisconsin. Um, and in fact, I believe your Pulitzer uh, uh, comes from, uh, from that area as well. But, um, you know, in recent years, uh, an important book that you've written for the purposes of our podcast, I think, is is uh, The Return of George Washington. So what's it like to sort of go back and forth as an author between these two worlds, the world of, of history of science and medicine and, and the world of, say, pure history or colonial history? Well, the, the Scopes book that you referred to, um, Summer for the Gods, actually does, is an example of just going back and forth. 
because it's all about constitutional his history. It's all about um, the fundamental changes that were happening in the understanding of constitutional law during the 1920s, uh, the rise of civil liberties when before um, they gave basically a, 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 a um, little meaning at all to the uh, to the First Amendment, and none at all as applied to the states until the time of the Scopes trial. Scopes trial was part of that. So it was, um, and the ACLU viewed it as part of that. So it's very much a book of legal history. It does include history of science, of course, um, but it's also a book of American history because the Scopes trial was a fundamental um, sort of iconic American experience. It captures as much as anything um, the tensions in that case capture what America's all about. And indeed, uh, you could say that in some ways it was the opening round of the cultural wars that still exist in America. So that would be an example of a book, and I try to do that in all my work, of crossing over our boundaries and drawing on all the different things I know. I'm probably not the best at any one of them, but if you cross-fertilize because the only way you can understand the Scopes trial, for example, is, is to be a lawyer and understand how legal motions work and what's admissible and what's not admissible. And, uh, but to understand it in context, you also have to understand American science and American religion and then the developments of American constitutional law. So that's what I try to do. I try to look for issues that cross boundaries on which I have uh, some background. So would you say that there's um, been, if you, if one were to look at the, let's say, a graph of scientific advance uh, over time since the time before the American founding, um, there probably were certain uh, peaks where cert certain scientific developments took place that had legal implications. Um, and would you say that uh, that constitutional law would have sort of similar peaks that that followed those developments, maybe with a you know a period of, of years in between, but that responded to those developments? Certainly. I think that um, science gray gained great authority with the um, with what they call the scientific revolution, with the work of Galileo and his followers, Descartes in France, and then um, Isaac Newton, and in many ways, uh, political science was trying to, and, and the science of economics with somebody like an Adam Smith, was latching on to that knowledge. Um, when, um, for example, when Washington makes his uh, celebratory tour back from the liberation of New York City down to Annapolis, I was looking at those recently for some reason. And he would give a speech in every town. And in every town, he talked about the prospect for America in peace, with liberty, and independency. And in every speech, right off the bat, he said, the progress of science. He always thought, we have a chance now. Uh, he was very interested in science. Um, he viewed himself as a scientific farmer, and he wanted to bring new and revolutionary techniques. He turned his farm, of course, from a uh, spun-out tobacco farm to a, really a state-of-the-art um, uh, grain uh, place that grew wheat and other grains 
there was barley, there were other grains, but he did it through what he viewed as scientific farming. He built a new type of barn um, that he viewed as his creation. It was a round barn and the, 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 the grain could be thrown on the second floor and it was a mesh floor and the, uh, the um, horses would walk around it. And he wrote articles for scientific uh, farming journals in England. So he very, he very much believed, and of course he applied science to trying to build a canal to the, um, to the American West across the Appalachian Mountains. Um, he viewed himself, he viewed that this time was special. He viewed that this was a time where we could have ordered liberty, we could have a Republican government, and he believed that it was in, he could, we could do that in the light of science and reason. And he would say so repeatedly. Now, you, of course, you can quote any one of them like that. You can do the same thing for Franklin. You can do the same thing for John Adams. You could do the same thing for Madison, Jefferson. You could do that for, for all of the big names, all the top level, Hamilton, all the top level people. You could do the same thing. They really believed why they were able to create something new under the sun and were not benighted in you know, the backwash, as they view it, of the Dark Ages. Um, they viewed it, certainly they associated Protestantism with that, but they viewed Protestant as a rational religion uh, as well. And they viewed science as um, fundamental to what they were creating. And so they put in provisions into the Constitution about science. But that was that was where they were coming from. And so there was a tremendous back and forth, and also in the understanding of making law more rational um, in general, but certainly with the founding of the Constitution and with our, our um, founders, uh, science was one of the reasons they could move forward with the Republican experiment in government. Yeah, this is very interesting because, you know, you mentioned that some of the uh, threads that you saw in the Scopes trial and indeed in, in other periods in American history can be seen in our current uh, divisions. And some would say that, that there's a division uh, in America that centers around science. Um, you know, that, uh, for example, climate science um, and vaccine science, uh, you know, and, and so forth. Um, so let's take that as, as a given for a moment. Then now George Washington is viewed uh, as a unifying figure, um, and now you're saying that he is a man of science, um, at least in part. Was that part of? Remember, what... he he required that his troops be vaccinated. Yes, indeed. Um, so is that part of what made him a unifying figure? And at what point does uh, do we go off off the rails a little bit? For example, you know, you've written a a, a book. Um, about the election of 1800, um, uh, a magnificent catastrophe um, where we have uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. And um, to some degree in that book, you say that there's a little bit of a science versus religion uh, you know, dynamic going on there. So where, do, where does Washington fit in here? His notion of being a man of science, this notion of being a unifying figure, um, the divisions in America, you know, where, where, where do you tie all this together? He would have thought that science was unified. That's the way he would have viewed it. He would have viewed science as a source of better understanding. Uh, and in many ways, 
the science that these people practiced grew out of or had fundamental ties with religion. Because if you go back to say this, um, the sort of the founding philosopher of science for um, the English science, it'd be Francis Bacon, who was also a lawyer and also a chancellor. Um, but he wrote important books on the new, um, he, would, he would take names of Aristotle's book and put the word new before it and publish them. And what he believed and what he wrote about and others of his time, um, they believed that with science, with the tools of rational science, of breaking things down by the scientific method, in the way that Galileo sort of founded and Newton elaborated on, but so did others. They weren't alone, um, Hooke and others, and, and both Descartes and Bacon. Um, is, and then use the tools that God gives us, new tools like the telescope and the microscope and the barometer and the thermometer, um, rather than just rough observation that we can, and this is what they would have said, this is what they did say at founding of the Royal Society um, in England, the Royal Scientific Society, um, that we can reclaim, now that we've broken the, the, the um, uh, what phrase would they use, the, the darkening um, burdens of Catholicism, now that we've broken through the superstition of Catholicism to the true light of Protestantism, um, we can reclaim the power that Adam had. That before the uh, before the fall, we could see, like Adam could see, like we could see with a telescope or with a microscope. He could name the animals, like Linnaeus was naming the animals and giving order to the um, to the animals and plants of the world that had been lost in the befuddleness of mystery and superstition. So they viewed science as a fundamentally scientific activity, and that view was carried over to America, because you look at who was doing the science in America. Sure, it was a Ben Franklin, but here at Yale, Yale was fundamental in, in, in science in, in America because of the Sheffield School at Yale, and it had people like um, Benjamin Silliman, and his son-in-law, James Dwight Dana, both very devout Christians who were literally at the forefront of science of the day. A person like what John, uh, George Washington and a Benjamin Franklin and a Jefferson and an Adams would view them as unified. They would help draw us together. And what they feared was... Um, and Akil and I were teaching a class last night, and time and again, James Madison, Jr., who went to um, and studied at Princeton, very much in that way of thought, um, said one of the things that, one of the great fears is this, oh, I guess he'd call it dogmatic religion, a religion pushed by um, either be a dogmatic, like he would view Catholicism, or a religion pushed by some sort of enthusiast. What they feared was um, sort of enthusiastic or irrational religion or dogmatic religion, but they thought true religion was lockstep with what they were doing. 
So then why was it a conflict between Adams and Jefferson in many people's minds? A core of Jefferson's support was the dissenting churches. He got tremendous res- uh, support from the, from the uh, Lutherans, from the, um, the Baptists. I mean, when he became, when he became president, whenever he was in Washington, he went to church at a Baptist church with John Leland, probably the most profound Baptist leader of his day. Um, so what it was, it was, a, it was an internecine split within religion that John Adams was viewed, was presented as the um, supporter of established religion, mm-hmm. that his state of Massachusetts still had an established church where Jefferson brought freedom of religion so that Lutherans and Baptists uh, in Virginia would not have to pay for what they viewed as the corrupt Episcopal Church. And so what you see is a battle, yes, over religion, but it's a it's very much, if you watch the literature or if you study the vote, whatever you want to look at, um, they both accused um, not themselves, but their their most um, radical propagandists on both sides mm-hmm. would accuse the other of being an agnostic or not a true believer or a hypocrite. Um, Jefferson's people like DeWitt Clinton, read any pamphlet, he's constantly accusing um, John Adams of being a hypocrite. He has no more religion than my horse, he would say. Um, it's all a fraud, and he wants to establish religion. Wherefore, freedom of religion. Jefferson brought freedom of religion so every person could believe, follow God in their own way. Whereas on the other side, um, certainly the radical, um, not Adams himself, the radical supporters of Adams, the polemicists, as it were, were accusing Jefferson not really as a scientist, but as a philosopher. No one was worse. No one was a bigger attack. If I had to name the number one, the number one scallywag throwing out the red meat against um, Jefferson, it was the president of Yale. Unshameless, as shameless as DeWitt Clinton in, in, uh, in New York. So if, and of course, uh, so if you want to read those, you want to read those two peoples, you do get that. But in reality, both Jefferson and Wash Adams had known each other for years, and they knew their religious views were almost identical. And all of them, especially Washington and Franklin, but also Jefferson and Adams, um, believed very much that the success of the Revolution and the success of the Constitutional Convention was directly attributable to divine providence, that God has a special plan for America. They would say it repeatedly. In that sense, all these people were alike. And so Jefferson and Adams knew they, and the reason why they didn't engage in these, these, um, these attacks themselves was because they knew they had, they knew they thought the same. You know, it's interesting that you say that, that, that they were convinced that, uh, that God had a special plan for America um, because that implies a um, an, an sort of inevitability about the about the success of America, and when we look back now um, at uh, George Washington, uh, 
Um, I think there's a lot of scholarship now that, that can, for example, in Nikhil's book, that considers him the indispensable man. So if he was indispensable, then perhaps it wasn't so, uh, so assured that, that America would, would get there. And unless, you wrote a, God, unless God picked him out and yes. kept him alive. No, I understand that. Remember, that. He had many times there were bullet holes in his coats there were, during battles. There, were, there was literally, I think, nine times where he personally believed, and other Americans at the time thought that he was saved from certain death. Bullet holes in his coats, in his shirts, in his hats, that he should have been dead and yet he had been preserved. And he believed that very strongly. So yeah, he could have been, I think that Franklin and Washington were both indispensable. I think we had two indispensable uh, founders, but um, you can believe they were indispensable. And at the same time, believe that God created them, preserved them and protected them. Certainly, they viewed they viewed his getting smallpox when he went down to um, uh, uh, Barbados, and therefore saved the scourge of smallpox when all around him were dying during the revolution. He viewed that as providential too. So it's not. I don't see the conflict with being in, in, um, indispensable. Indeed, in some ways, I view that as um, that a religious person would see those as totally compatible, indeed, even greater proof of the providence of God. Well, you wrote a book about, you know, the, about George Washington's return, um, the return of George Washington. And, uh, you know, the... Not many, a very imaginative title, you're right. Well, no, no, I, I actually, I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very interesting title um, because um, the return itself was not... Uh, was not so inevitable. Is that right? I mean, Washington himself uh, was undecided, was ambivalent about uh, about the return, right? Um, well, at any I, rate, um, Nikhil knows uh, more, uh, as much or more as I do about that. Um, I think he always thought it was. It, it, he always thought that he thought that the, uh, from the very beginning, while he was still general in his circular letter to the states, he thought that the that the confederation was fatally flawed. He hoped that these guys in Congress could straighten it out, but he didn't have much faith in it. So I thought he always thought that it was a very likely prospect that we'd come back. And he consciously, you can read in his letters, he would not want to use up his political capital because he thought he could pull it off once. And so he held back and he would write to people like Knox, or others that no, I can't jump in now because I can really only jump in once, and I got to make sure it's the right time and we can do something if I need to jump in. So I think he always viewed it as a as a prospect, but he hoped that yeah, I think he hoped it wouldn't happen. And, let, and let's just take a step back and remind our audience uh, what period we're talking about in the life of Washington and the life of the nation. So Ed's great book. The Return of George Washington, from which I've learned so much, um, uh, is not a full-blown biography of George Washington from uh, cradle to grave. It focuses on the period basically after the war and before the presidency. 
So um, at the moment when Washington basically um, uh, surrenders, his, uh, uh, returns his military commission uh, to uh, the Confederation Congress and basically says, um, you gave me all this power um, in order to, to uh, uh, defend our country. Um, I used it to defend the country. Our country has now prevailed um, by force of arms. Um, uh, Britain has recognized our independence and the, the Treaty of Paris of 1783. And now I'm going to go back to my farm, to the plow, um, and forever retire. He says, he suggests forever retire from, from public affairs. But Ed is now just saying that maybe he knew that forever might not be forever. But um, and the famous circular letter that Ed alluded to um, is sometimes uh, referred to today as Washington's first farewell, um, saying goodbye um, to, to power, memorialized, of course, in this spectacular. So he sends a circular letter to the state governors, and he famously surrenders his sword um, uh, at uh, Annapolis to, to the Confederation Congress. I think it's December 23rd or 20, 22nd or 23rd of, 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 of 1783. Um, he, I think, gets to Mount Vernon Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Uh, but he surrenders his sword, and that's memorialized in an amazing uh, painting uh, by John Trumbull um, in the Yale University Art Gallery, just a couple of hundred yards from where Ed and I are now sitting. Um, Ed has come out to co-teach a class with, with me for a few weeks here at Yale. Um, and that's when the book really kind of, that's the beginning of this, uh, the, the period that the book is um, uh, chronicling, uh, Washington's first retirement. And it tells the story of how Washington, uh, maybe reluctantly, but uh, ultimately emphatically, leaves that retirement, um, is, is uh, prevailed upon by the likes of James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, Henry Knox, and others to um, uh, leave his farm a second time to ride to the rescue of his country, to go to Philadelphia, where he will be picked as um, the presiding officer of the Philadelphia Convention, the presider, the president of the Philadelphia Convention, and, and will, uh, which will propose a constitution creating a very strong presidency, that, uh, that will be ratified in part because mainly because George Washington is supporting it and, and will be the first president if it's approved. And then he does indeed become uh, first president unanimously elected. Um, that's the period of Ed's book. Um, and then, of course, we also know he'll be unanimously reelected and then have a second great retirement um, and, 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 and farewell at the end of his second term saying, you know, uh, a republic, um, we now think he's actually pretty quiet about exactly why he's doing this, but we now read that second retirement as trying to make a big statement that a republic needs to be greater than any one individual. Um, but the, the, the return of George Washington is um, the period after the first farewell and before the inauguration, basically. That's the, the main period covered in the book, which especially includes Washington's decision to leave retirement, um, and just says he can do it once, uh, to go to Philadelphia, preside at Philadelphia as the strong, silent type where he ends up getting almost everything he wants without to say very much, 
um, watching the Constitution be ratified um, in a crusade led by his lieutenants, his, his, his um, um, backers, people like Madison and Hamilton and, and Jay and others, and then be uh, unanimously called to the presidency. That's the period that, that Ed focuses on. And the reason that I, I'm interested in steering the conversation towards this book and this period that, that Akil just summarized is because one of the things we've been discussing on this podcast sort of intermittently and, and recently in a conversation we had with Gordon Wood is this question of who is the father of the Constitution? Whose Constitution is it? And um, uh, Gordon was of the opinion that, uh, along with many, that it's Madison's Constitution. Madison is the, the indispensable man of the Constitution, as it were. Um, Akil, in his book, The Words That Made Us, makes a case that it's Washington. He just gave you some of the, you know, sort of the output-based theory that what comes out of the Constitu- of the convention is what Washington wanted, not what Madison wanted. Uh, in my conversation with, with, in our conversation with Gordon, I kind of put forward a, a, perhaps a, a synthesis of this where Madison could be viewed as the father of the convention, particularly the Annapolis Convention uh, and the Philadelphia Convention, and but that Washington is more the father of the act of the Constitution, and that's you know input versus output there. Um, at any rate, uh, where where do you stand on this, um, Ed? And also, so two questions: one, you know, where where does Washington fit in the story versus Madison? And two, why does it matter? If it I, I think what you see on this is a bit of a generational difference. I think if Gordon Wood's generation, um, there was this um, sort of received wisdom that uh, uh, Madison was the architect of the Constitution. But if you look closely, and there's been an awful lot of scholarship, um, I think that that no longer really holds up. Um, When you look closely at the final product, um, so I would be closer to Akil's view. I guess how I would say it to be generous um, would be, well, if Madison is the architect of the Constitution, then George Washington was a general contractor. (laughs) And if you ever built a house or put an addition on your house, you know, in the end, it's more like what the general contractor does with those blueprints than with those original blueprints. Because we know Washington was first. Washington's circular letter of the states outlines, and then a constant stream of letters, hundreds of them. Uh, Washington was, had help in writing his letters, but they were his thoughts. Um, he poured letters out to all the leaders, like the governor of Connecticut or uh, the governor of uh, New Hampshire, to name two in New England he was particularly close to, but um, to uh, Henry Knox, to all sorts of people, to the Pinckneys, to all sorts of people all over, the the Morrises in, in Pennsylvania, people all over the country. And you can read those letters and just take it straight from the, the circular letter to the states, or the similarly written, written basically at the same time, the uh, the document on the establishment of peace, basically the, the outline for a standing army. 
And you see the outline, the vision that Washington had. And that's the big picture. And it's a centralized national, I think it'd be fair to call it national government, that is supreme in all things that are national. Certainly, certainly would cover interstate commerce as well as international commerce. Certainly would call taxing and spending for the general welfare, which would include a military that was strong enough to open the West and defend against invasion from any country that might want to invade. I don't think he was too worried that that would happen from a France or a Spain, but he had to stand up to France and Spain on the borders. But more than that, he needed to open the West, which were filled with what he viewed as a hostile Native American tribes. So you, 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 you get a, a central government with that sort of power that ultimately is supreme, ultimately in the supreme. Now, the states are not wiped off the map. They're things that are best left to local control, and I suppose it'd be education. I suppose to him it'd be slavery. I suppose to him it'd be a whole bunch of in, uh, individual built locally building of roads, but the building of canals, the dredging of harbors, lighthouses, that might well go on the national sort of promotion of commerce. Because he believed, remember, he had a business that crossed state lines. He was selling wheat all over the New World, indeed all over the world. His sheep ship, his wheat was sold as far away as China. So he was very interested. He thought that if you as long as each state was themselves, as long as it was Connecticut and New York, the pie was small. He wanted to grow the pie with a conception of a national market economy, which Hamilton then so ably carries out. And, and, and Ed, it's not just that, because Ed is very modest, as is, as is Gordon, as we talked about in um, a, a, a recent podcast. Look. Ed, I'm getting the idea that it's Washington's Constitution from you. I credit you publicly in the, in the book. Thing. Like Ed Larson did see it first. It's not just the nationalism, which you capture, and indivisibility. It has to be an indivisible Absolutely. union. He's Absolutely. anticipating Lincoln. And, and Madison's best buddy, Jefferson, never understands that, never gets the memo. Madison does, yeah. but, but his, his best buddy doesn't. Right. It's not just that, which is you know, Washington. Um, and it's not just that he understands the military stuff in a way that Madison doesn't, and, and, and the world picture, which Madison doesn't. It's within this national government, he understands the need for a strong president, an executive power, and Madison doesn't really have that much of a clue about that. And I think, yeah. and I think you agree yeah. that one of the biggest things about the Constitution, at least if we're looking at the output, what comes out of the process, is an extraordinarily powerful executive compared to the state governors. No state has the following combination. A four-year term, um, independently elected from the legislature, infinitely re-eligible, with a singular veto pen held by one person and a really and a singular and very powerful pardon 
ten held by one person and commander in chief of the army and, and navy and of the state militias uh, uh, and the state militias of the entire continent. My God, no state has anything like that package. Yeah. And and Madison isn't conceiving that. Madison says, "Oh, I don't know even what executive power should look like." And Washington, he might not say all of this because it's not politic for him to to say all of this in advance. But this is what he wants, and this is what he gets. And at Philadelphia. Yeah. He's the he's the unanimously selected presiding officer. Five of the different people um, there, and from five different states, are his aides de camp: and, uh, 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 Hamilton, um, Randolph, Pinckney, Mifflin, McHenry. Um, uh, they're not Madison's men; they're his men. They're his law clerks, you know. And 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 he just smiles or frowns, and pretty much. Um, well, he meets gets, with them at night. Ah, oh, right. And, and and Madison's notes don't capture all of that. And I think he's getting what he wants. So, so he is. And then America ratifies the thing because Washington vouches for it. That, that counts for more than James Madison and Alexander Hamilton and John Jay times five. Um, um, and he's unanimously picked as the first president who consolidates the whole thing. So, of course, it's Washington's constitution. And if you look at the course, other, the father. And you can do the same thing looking at the other side of the ledger, as Akio well knows. Then you take Madison's ledger, and Madison was a gifted tinkerer. I think he was a he was a great um, behind the scenes manipulator. He was a big committee member. He could think out details. Washington wasn't a detail person. He was a big picture person, and Washington was always willing to compromise on details yes. to get the big picture. Yes. Madison cared all about these little details, so he wanted to have lower federal courts, and he wanted to have he wanted all these little things, which he doesn't get. When he, he fights for all these little things, and one by one by one by one, he's rolled. He's rolled a on proportional all the Senate, um, yeah. a direct um, a Senate directly elected by the people. Right. He wants that. He wants a, a, a kind of a committee veto with judges uh, being part of the, the right. president's process. He wants a, a congressional negative on on all state laws. He wants taxes on exports. Um, and he, 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 he loses on the and, the, and almost believe, everyone on every one of those. If you believe his words, which he put. Which he must be believed because he was willing to preserve them and put them in the in his Madison's notes. He thought all those things were absolutely essential. Everything on that list, he was like bonkers about. We absolutely need it. Washington just sat back and said, "Ah, oh, we can take this Senate. I don't really like the way this Senate's picked. I don't like the two. I don't like this, but it's okay. It's we can work. We can with live this. with it. We can work with this. We got to give this things because he's fundamentally." A compromiser on details because he has been in battle and he sees the big picture. It doesn't matter exactly how all the tactics work. It's the big picture. It's the strategy. And he stays laser focused on the big things. And so he could give Roger um, Sherman. Uh, Sherman this or he could give this to Pinkney or he exactly. could give this to somebody else. Yeah, that's not really going to matter fundamentally to my main goals. And so that's why, um, so you can you can run the ledger on Washington on one side, and then you can run the ledger on the other side on Madison, and they're both pushing in the same direction. That fundamentally, because even on the little things, I think Wilson and, and Gouverneur Morris got more than Madison. Um, so if you run the ledger, it ends up that, yeah, in, in great in in great vision and in fundamental natures, I would agree with uh, Akil. It's 
Washington's Constitution. And here's why it matters. On something like, and Ed has already referred to it, the bank. Washington signs it into law because he understands that banks help you win wars. Madison doesn't understand this and indeed opposed it, saying it was unconstitutional. And Madison lost and Washington won. And and I think Washington's view was fundamentally correct. If you think Madison's the father of the Constitution, oh, it would matter a lot that he was on the other side. But if you say, no, it's Washington, and Washington gets it, and Madison doesn't, and who in the end changes his mind? Not George Washington. It's James Madison, who, when he becomes president, signs a bank bill into law, um, actually after ha- having initially opposed it. A tax plan, a tax on carriages. You know, Washington signs it into law because you need taxes to win wars. You need banks to win wars. Madison doesn't understand this stuff. Madison says, oh, that's all unconstitutional. The Supreme Court unanimously rules against Madison on that. In the first, the most important case before John Marshall, called, case called Hylton versus the United States, argued by Alexander Hamilton, the Supreme Court will eventually unanimously side with George Washington um, on the bank issue, McCulloch versus Maryland, and say expressly in the opinion um george washington was for this this the bank um a bill persuaded a mind quote as pure and as intelligent as this country can boast um that's what the court's unanimous decision says in the colleague versus maryland and, and reminding the audience at least twice that madison and jefferson were on the other side initially and who writes that opinion for unanimous court well, his name would be john marshall and who's john marshall is he madison's man no, he's a Washington man. He was there at Valley Forge. He fought an, uh, an, in, in Washington's army, and he's the authorized biographer of George Washington. So it matters, um, um, Andy, for stuff like the, the bank bill and the, and, and the tax bill. And why does that matter to McCulloch versus Maryland, Hylton versus United States? This is a Hamiltonian, Washingtonian vision. Uh, Hamilton is like in Washington. And why does that matter today? Mm-hmm. Because on stuff like whether Obamacare is constitutional, mm-hmm. if you understand George Washington's vision, then just like you need a national bank, you, you need a national health care po- um, um, policy today on stuff like vaccines. Well, you know, you need vaccines to vaccinate the army to win wars and you need vaccines today, actually for similar national defense reasons. And if you start with Madison, you may get it wrong on this. If you start with Washington, you're going to be fundamentally correct on big things today, like Obamacare and vaccine mandates. And um, Akil may not agree with me on this because um, I'm skipping over all the Yaleys on the court. But the person on the court, I believe, who most clearly channels Marshall and therefore Washington is the Chief Justice John Roberts. Oh, I agree with you. He gets it. Yeah, he, now he's, he's, not, he's, not, he's not perfect on Obamacare, but 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 no, he does. But, but he's got the basic point. But he does. John Roberts thinks a lot about. Here would be the connection. We've talked about this before, Andy. I say, oh, John Roberts thinks a lot about um, Henry Friendly because he clerked for Henry Friendly, and he therefore thinks a lot about Louis Brandeis because. Um, friendly clerk for Brandeis. And we talked about um, the Brandeisian connection in Obamacare because Roberts thinks about that. I, um, I also believe, um, see, because it's not just liberal versus conservative. It's, 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 um, it's so much more interesting. Constitutional is so much more interesting than that. John Roberts thinks a lot about John Marshall because John Marshall's the greatest chief justice with the possible exception of Earl Warren and John Roberts wants to be a great chief justice. So I promise you, he's thought a lot about John Marshall 
Um, and therefore... And what was the topic of his college dissertation? His I college thesis. I, college thesis was on John Marshall. I did not know that, okay? But but if you think a lot about John Marshall, look what I said. I said he thinks a lot about Henry Friendly, and therefore um, the person for whom Friendly, because he clerked for Friendly, the person for whom Friendly clerked, um, who is um, uh, 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 Brandeis. Um, he thinks a lot about Robert Jackson because um, he clerked for Rehnquist and Rehnquist clerked for Jackson. I talked about that before. But if he's thinking a lot about John Marshall, he just asks a simple question. Who is John Marshall most thinking about? And the answer is not James Madison at all. John Marshall actually is dissing James Madison, going out of his way to remind his audience that James Madison was on the wrong side of the bank issue early on when it counted and, and then had, had to flip-flop on this. And how embarrassing for Madison was that? John Marshall is thinking a lot about George Washington. And I think the one time John Marshall goes overboard in praising a person he didn't like, Thomas Jefferson, was his praise for the uh, Louisiana Purchase. The great acts of Jefferson to buy Louisiana, <laughs> which some thought were unconstitutional because he knew that Washington would have supported Absolutely, Louisiana. because he's sticking, look, He's, he's so subtle. He's sticking it to Jefferson because Jefferson actually is adopting Hamiltonian and Washingtonian principles. And Jefferson deep down knows yeah. that too. Yeah. So yeah, so this was this was John Marshall's way of actually twisting the yeah. knife a, a little bit, even while praising him. And that's why Jefferson has a very successful first term. I think arguably the best one term of any president in American history. The second one was not so good. But in that first one, he was very much, I think, living in the shadow and, and, and reflecting a Washington. Yes. He was taking over after a failed presidency by Adams. Right. And, 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 and Madison does the same thing. See, Madison, in the end, says we need a bank. Signs into law and Jefferson doesn't peep. And these were the people who said, oh, a bank is the worst thing imaginable. It's totally unconstitutional. That's what they said in 1790. Yeah. So so they eventually came around. And, and here's Marshall's... Um, a great, I mean, he has many skills, but like when the other side comes around, embrace them, you know, say, welcome aboard, you know, glad you see it. And, and Marshall in particular is impressive because most of the people on that court that, that he presides over in the 18 teens, they're appointed by the likes of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. And yet he's managing to lead them toward Hamiltonian and Washingtonian principles again and again. Joseph Story being the greatest example, but I, I hey, Joseph Story, I who is Marshall's Jefferson, right hand, right. was put on the court by James Madison. And what does Thomas Jefferson say? Oh, don't do that! He tells Madison, "Don't do this." You know, the story's going to be uh, you know squishy on, on all sorts of stuff. He he's unquestionably a Tory. Um, he's gonna he's gonna uh, be be um, seduced by John Marshall's blandishments. And, and he was, or or he he, he basically in the end side. I think he basically Marshall. agreed with him yeah. fundamentally, and that's yeah. why Jefferson was was alerting. So I do think, in all those senses, it really does matter because it would be a different const. I mean, Madison moves around. He, he's not with Washington. He's sort of like a rock. Um, he certainly grows over his life. Um, he grows in many ways over his life, but it was the same fundamental person as when he was a, a young man. And I do hope you could talk just a little bit about his growth on slavery, in particular, which we haven't talked about. But, but. Whereas Madison sort of moves around. He's, uh, he's Washington's prime minister at the beginning of Washington's term. He's very close with Washington um, during the ratification process. 
And then he moves over to uh, a, uh, a different camp, more even further than Jefferson in a way. And then as Akil is pointing out, after he has to be practically be president, and he, he, he moves more toward a Washington vision. And so he gets better as time goes on as president. Jefferson starts out sort of beginning as Washingtonian in the beginning, and he moves off for it. So his first term was better. I think Matt Madison's second term was probably better. And what about uh, Washington's uh, moral growth on slavery? He was surrounded. George Washington was surrounded by people. Um, there were people, Washington built up incredible bonds with certain people in his life. When he was a young man, he had some bonds with older men who, who guided him and shaped him, like Lord Fairfax. Um, and in, when he got older, by the time he was general, he would build these, he would build close ties with, to be a guiding light for people younger than him. People like Lafayette, John Lawrence, Alexander Hamilton. And all three of those had profound problems with slavery. Um, they all thought that slavery was fundamentally wrong. They had different views among them about blacks, but they all believed slavery was fundamentally wrong. And that was a generational thing. And Washington was from an earlier generation. He also had his wealth built on slaves. He inherited a lot of slaves. There was no questioning slavery when he was young and when he was growing older. His earlier mentors have had, had slaves, and, and he always viewed himself as a fair master. Um, his slaves viewed him as a firm master, but you can be firm and still be fair. Um, and those younger men constantly worked on it, especially Lafayette and John Lawrence. They constantly worked on it, sent him letters, talked to him in private, urged him, you could, you could change the trajectory of all this by standing up against slavery, freeing your slaves. And some of the other revolutionary leaders were doing at the North at some point. Certainly John Hancock would be a clear example of that. John Adams never owned slaves, but never supported it. John Hancock really didn't own any himself, but he inherited some when he inherited his uncle's business and he wouldn't keep them. Samuel Adams wouldn't keep his slaves. Um, so there was growth and change. Uh, his neighbor, who he greatly admired before the revolution uh, and through the revolution, uh, Mason was tr profoundly troubled by the institution of slavery. So Washington was- Robert Carter? Uh, right, Robert Carter would be another example of, I don't think he was as close to Robert Carter, but Robert Carter would be a big example. example. A big example. I mean, he really did free his slaves, George Hundreds uh, Mason did, yes, in, in, in huge numbers. So you, um, you, and Jefferson, of course, made his statements about slavery, was clearly troubled by it. Um, Talked a good game. Um, yeah, yeah, but did, um, but played it out partly. Um, and so Washington certainly evolves. Certainly he doesn't have, he no longer by the middle of his life, by the time he is back to, um, 
um, back to Mount Vernon, the period I write about, he is no longer, he doesn't reject slavery for himself, but he is troubled by it. He also grows to believe that is not part of America's future. He really came to believe he'd, he'd had working men, working white men in his army, and he came to believe that the future of America was in white laboring class, free white workers. And uh, that was fundamentally incompatible with a massive slave population. He honestly believed that, he honestly wished that slavery had never been brought to America. And he thought, he saw more resourcefulness in the North where people, um, where, free, where there were free workers, because he spent a lot of time during the war in Massachusetts and in and around New York and in Pennsylvania. Um, those were where his headquarters always were. Yorktown was a one-off deal. He fought in most of his battles in New Jersey, but he fought some in Pennsylvania and some in Massachusetts. Um, and some in New York, of course, where he was based up in um, New Windsor. So um, he, he, he was living in that world, and he, there, he became to see that he did not believe, and of course he lived really before the cotton gin, um, he did not see slavery as fundamental to the future. He didn't quite know how to get from here to there, which was the same problem that Jefferson had and Madison did. How do you get from here to there? And so he had that problem, but he did, he did think differently than he did when he was when he was young. And of course, he probably because he wants to send a message on his deathbed, he asked that the two, and he knew he was dying, he asked that the two wills that he'd written be given to him, and he looked them as his really last act. Um, he looked them both over, and he asked one to be burned, and he saw it burned in the fireplace there in his room, and he said, this is my final will. And we don't know what the other one said, but this one provides that his own slaves, not Martha's, but his own slaves would be freed upon Martha's death. Um, and he had no legal authority to free Martha, Martha slaves. Martha didn't even quite have authority because they were entailed and, and, and the rest. So, so he freed pretty much what he could. He freed his slaves. Yeah. And he, he, that was complicated because yeah. they were intermarried with Martha's. Right. But, um, Very and of course it had the unexpected byproduct but immediately, <laughs> immediately Martha feared for her life yeah. because she figured some of these people are going to kill me because hundred of them, hundred of these slaves, or hundred and twenty of these slaves are going to be free if I'm dead. And she began sleeping in the cupola. If you've ever, um, she began instead of her bedroom, and she didn't want to sleep in her bedroom because it was the bed in which George Washington died. They had a shared bedroom that's, if you ever go to Mount Vernon, is right above directly above the office, which is sort of the wing, sort of the, uh, it would be geographically the east wing of the, of the Mount Vernon. The center of Mount Vernon was all public. And then the west wing, or the part that stiffs out, if you're looking at Mount Vernon from the land side on your, on your left, would be what Washington added was the great dining room. On the right, what he added was his his um, office, and then above it, their bedroom. So they were off on the two wings. There's this middle, and in the middle, there's that cupola. And if she goes up there, she figures out she can move. There's a 
there's a flat bit up there. There's a flap door you have to go through to get up there. And if you close the flap door and move the bed over it, nobody can get up. And so she started sleeping up there for fear that these slaves would, uh, would kill her in the middle of the night. She could have freed them and she wouldn't have had to worry about it. That's what she does. No, that's what she does. Mm-hmm. She then realized, I can't, I can't. Uh, and so she speeds up the freeing of Washington slaves. So they're freed before her death. Yes. That's exactly how she dealt with the problem. I know we have to get going, you know, in just not too long, but, but if I could invite Ed to say just um, one final set of, of things we've talked about Washington and about John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and, and that election and science and, and religion. We've talked about um, um, Madison. We've talked a little bit about um, Hamilton. One of uh, Ed's other great books, uh, we've mentioned The Return of George Washington. We've mentioned A Magnificent Catastrophe. Another one of his great books, we've talked about Scope's Monkey Trial, although just uh, in, in passing, is a joint biography called um, Franklin and Washington. And um, before we let Ed slip away, I'm hoping we can have him tell us a little bit about um, his his thoughts about Franklin as well. And before, you know, as we get into that, though, I, I also want to add to that um, query. Um, one of the things that we do on this podcast is we talk about uh, what it's like to be on the inside of some of these things. So we've been talking about um, books, writing a book, you know, the life of the author, working with the publisher and so forth. Um, and, you know, you've written a host of books. A joint biography is a particular genre. Um, you know, what's it like to write a joint biography? How do you, you know, what, what are the challenges of doing that versus, you know, one subject other than that you've got twice as much research to do. And particularly in this case, my understanding is that Franklin and Washington didn't have that much interaction with each other, um, although they had some. But if you're not going to focus on their interaction, does this, you know, then is it, how do you make it, you know, okay, here's the biography of Franklin and here's the biography of Washington. So um, those are some things I'm, I'm interested in, in addition to the substantive comments that you have on Franklin and, uh, as a founder and so forth? Well, they, they did fundamentally interact. They were a, they were a team. Um, and part of the reason I wanted to do it, the two reasons, but one that you sort of alluded to was simply the writing challenge. Um, I like to have new challenges. That's why I write on different subjects. I don't like to be bored. And I like to keep my mind sharp and alert. And part of it is the research, but part of it is just the sheer joy I have in writing. I love to write. And writing is not just writing a paragraph. It's structure. It's trying to think how to structure a book. What stories to what stories do I pull out to make my message? convey my message because there you know you could say history is just one damn fact after another and if you just put all the damn facts together you got a phone book and you know (laughs) what do you get out of that so you've got to pick and choose your what happens and you've got to put flesh on the bones to make the make these people real so first, you have to feel those people. You have to really understand 
think like those people, feel like those people, and then you can try to communicate it to others. So one of the one of the reasons I took that project, I adopted it. one of the reasons was simply the writing challenge of doing a joint biography where you're going back and forth between people. Um, the other reason was that I have always contended ever since I was a, a student and certainly since I began teaching American history back at the University of Georgia in 1989, that there were two indispensable people. John Adams, in his own bitter way, got it right, that all we're going to remember about the, uh, the Revolutionary War is that Franklin throws a lightning bolt down, up pops John, uh, uh, George Washington, and that's it. Um, <laughs> and Jefferson says much the same thing. Jefferson, in a very pointed letter, said, wrote to Washington, says, shortly after Franklin died, he said, you know, there's just two of them. There's two of them. There's the two of us. The rest of us are, are not even in your league. There were two of you that created this country. So you got but when Adams and Jefferson both agree on something, we're <laughs> on to something. And I just think that without Washington in the field and without Franklin negotiating the treaty, because we wouldn't have been independent without the Treaty of France. Mm-hmm. No way. Mm-hmm. Without Franklin getting those fleets and armies actually to America, negotiating the hard negotiation and get the uniforms and the cannons and actually the fleet up from the Caribbean to close that trap at, at, at Yorktown. The French fleet. And, and it was Franklin that did that. It's Franklin mm-hmm. organized that. But you can go off like that with Washington. And then you get to the Constitutional Convention. They were the two indispensable people there. If you look at the, all the newspapers after um, I agree, certainly, that Washington had the much greater influence on what was in it. Right. But they agreed on the fundamental things. They both wanted a new constitution. Franklin would have had other structures. He wouldn't have had that strong a presence. Not at all. But, he didn't, but he didn't what love he, that what he did agree with is we need an, uh, 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 a, a one-way union. We need an inseparable union of the states. Join or die. He believed in his depth of hearts. Yep. And he believed in the, he agreed with Washington on the fundamental power. He too had a business that ran all the way from Nova Scotia into the Caribbean. In most of the colonies, he had printing presses. He too sold um, things. He sold, he was a printer, but he sold newspapers. So showed um, his almanac throughout the colonies. He had, he had integrated backward into, into forest and paper mills to make the paper for these things. So he, too, believed that only the federal government, he was the postmaster for all the colonies, he, too, believed we must have a national market economy. We'll grow the pie for everybody. So he believed in, in those same fundamental, and, he, of course, he was a military leader of his states. He was, he was head of his militia, just as Washington was head of his militia during the um, during the French and Indian Wars. So he had a military background, and he was actually very good at his military background. So he realized, he realized, and he believed in the, the, the federal government should have the power to tax and spend for the general welfare. So the key things on national powers and, an indis- and, a, and a union that would be last, he and Washington agreed, and they knew they agreed. Oh, they might have, they disagreed on a lot of little things, but they agreed on the big things. And all those big things made it into the Constitution. Now, um, so you see their fundamental, even though they came from very different backgrounds, Washington 
you know, born into wealth. He had to have some brothers die before he actually got it, but born into a landed gentry, Franklin born dirt poor, an indentured servant. Um, both of them became really wealthy mm-hmm. through hard work. Mm-hmm. Washington did inherit some, but he also was very creative and admitted farmer, just as Franklin. And they both believed in public per- service. They both believed in virtue. So there are a lot of similarities, um, despite the superficial differences. Um, Franklin was a great wit and great storyteller. Washington loved hearing a funny story, especially one that was a little bit bawdy. And Franklin was good at telling slightly bawdy stories. Um, the, um, and they go back because they were both head of their respective militias, the French and Indian War. And the French and Indian War, in fact, the global, the global Seven Years' War begins on the American frontier around Pittsburgh, where Pittsburgh is now. And if you look at old maps, that area was claimed both by Pennsylvania going straight back to a set specific line in their charter and Virginia by carrying north the angular line of the Potomac. And so the, the, um, it was unclear at that time during the French and Indian Wars whether the area around Pittsburgh was part of Virginia or part of Pennsylvania. And because they didn't know where the back quite hadn't, hadn't run that back line. Uh, it turns out to be Pennsylvania, but it's unclear. And, and so what started the war was the French decided to invade that territory because they already control Canada and they already control Louisiana and they were going around the long way up through uh, basically through Detroit, uh, through Chicago and Detroit, that area um, across from the Great Lakes to, so why not just cut the triangle and make Quebec and New Orleans closer together down the Ohio river. So they invade that area. And so they, and that's where the war starts, thanks to Washington um, uh, going in there. But then uh, Franklin's in there. So this is where the war begins. And this is where Franklin and Washington begin working together. Because they're both colonels, which is the highest rank you can be. They're both in charge of their state militia. They both go to the front with their national militia. What Franklin is out there building the forts picking how to design them, where to put them. And they work together quite closely. They both tell um, Bradford, um, Braddock, they both tell Edward Braddock, when Braddock decides, well, I'll solve this problem. I'll just take my army of redcoats and go up and kick those French out of Pittsburgh. They didn't call it Pittsburgh. They called it Fort Duquesne then. And both Franklin and Washington said, don't go. You'll be cut to pieces. You've never seen those Native Americans. You'll be chopped to shreds in your red coats walking across the... No, maybe you're a little petty colonial militia. This is almost direct quotes. Um, maybe you're petty militia, but not us British red coats. Well, what happens? Braddock's army gets chopped to pieces, just as Franklin and Washington predicted. And his body is carried back until he dies in one of Franklin's wagons that Franklin sent along with Washington riding aboard and then Washington burying him um, on, the, on the track because he didn't want him dug back up and, and, and scalped. 
So he buries them under the wagon train where the wagon train is going. But that's from one of what Franklin's wagons. So they were working together. They were meeting together as early as um, the uh, 1750s. And indeed, as, as Akil brilliantly points out in his book, when Franklin publishes his brilliant cartoon, Join or Die, around it, around it is the text of Washington's journal that Washington had, that the governor of Virginia had published, Washington's journal of his encounter with the French. So the same page has that first great American political cartoon by Franklin in Franklin's publication with excerpts from Washington's journals surrounding it. So they do go back and they know each other from then. Washington always respects his elders, especially ones that know science and technology and are rational. And Franklin was all of those things. And Frank and Washington knew his, his what Franklin's electric electricity work. And um, they begin a relationship there. And then when they both get thrown back together again in the Second Continental Congress um, in 1775, they immediately have already built on, they've already sent letters back and forth. They build on a relationship and immediately it flourishes because they are the only two people there who understand the military. And so the two of them are put in charge of every military committee, every planning the military. The two people we know that know the military is Washington and Franklin. It's all we got. And then when, when Franklin doesn't want to run the troops, I mean, he's too old by now because he's a, he's a half generation older than Washington. He wants Washington to leave. He pushes Washington. He gets Adams because he Franklin at this time works very closely with Adams because they were the early supporters of independence. The two, but Washington was already also committed to independence, but he wasn't as as vocal and as pushy about it as Franklin and, and, and Adams. And um, so they pushed Washington to be commander in chief. And then Franklin runs the war committees on his own. So when Washington wants to re redesign the troops, who goes up to Cambridge, Massachusetts to meet with them? Franklin. When Washington has his troops invade Canada, who goes up to Canada at 70 with the troops? Benjamin Franklin, he takes his own, his own um, uh, sheets because he's afraid of all the ticks and mites where he was going to have to stay. So he goes up to uh, uh, Canada. When, they try, when Washington, when they try to have a, negotiate with the British invading army that has invaded um, Washington, uh, invaded New York City, um, uh, or getting ready to, they're still in Staten Island, they haven't gone off, who goes up? to try to negotiate with them with letters sent back and forth, mediated by Washington. It's Benjamin Franklin. He goes up to Port Amboy. He's the one who's going to meet with the, um, with the Howe brothers. And so they, and then of course, after Franklin goes to, to Paris, they're writing back and forth all the time because they're coordinating the war. And Washington, Franklin is constantly boosting Washington in Pennsylvania, in, in France, meeting with the old generals in France, saying how good Washington's doing, and then sending back notes of the generals here think you're wonderful, because he knows Washington is getting a lot of negative feedback for um, what happened in, in, happened in New York or in other battles. 
Germantown or whatever, and he's boosting his ego. And then he is orchestrating who comes over and joins the troops. So you just name them. Every great European who comes from Lafayette to von Steuben, every single one of them met first with Franklin. Franklin approved them and sent them with a letter saying, you should take this man. So it goes way back. And therefore, it's no surprise when the, when the Constitution or Convention comes, when Washington goes up to, um, from Virginia, the first place he goes, when he's staying with Robert Morris. But as soon as he unpacks, the first thing he does is he goes down to Franklin's house and meets with Governor Franklin. So what would you say then is the take-home message for Americans that don't tend to think of Franklin and Washington as a, as a pair, as a team? Well, you know, what, what do we, you know, what, what do we learn from, from hearing these stories of, of them together? Well, I'd say two things. First, um, there are, there are lots of types of political relationships. So we tend to hear about like Washington and Hamilton or Lincoln and his team of rivals, hierarchical relationships, but there also are relationships of equals. Think of Roosevelt and Churchill in World War II. It would not have been successful without both of those men. But you can't say that Roosevelt was over Churchill or Churchill was over Roosevelt. They were co-equal, and they worked together like brothers to make it work. Um, and that um, you can also look at more modern times in America, the Civil Rights Bill. It would not have passed without Lyndon Johnson but it would not have passed without Martin Luther King. Again, they weren't hierarchical. One didn't control the other. They both had incredible power and dignity, but they worked on that like a team. And in both of those examples, and you can think of other examples through history, it's a different sort of relationship. People with their own standing working together, but communicate. One would not do something without the other knowing about it. They might not have to agree, often they'd agree, but at least keeping their lines of communication open. And I think both of these men were successful politicians, and I think they were both extraordinarily successful politicians. And I would add Roosevelt, and I would add Churchill, and I would add Lincoln to this sort of group, is they both never, they believed in their goals. They had a vision that they didn't compromise on, but they were willing to compromise on means. They, they didn't get tied up in means. They were willing to compromise. They were both willing to give credit to others. They both never hogged the limelight. They both famously gave credit to other people. Even if it was their idea, they wouldn't claim it. They would give credit to others. So they were compromisers who worked with one another um, and those are leadership traits that they actually shared. So being as different as they were, they had enormous respect for each other. So it takes respect, it takes cooperation, it takes sharing the credit. These are the sort of traits that made America, that truly make America great, not the sort of traits you get from a Donald Trump. These are the traits that make an America great. And... Um, uh, so I think both uh, of these individuals merit not only our admiration, but our study, but not over some others, not over a Roosevelt, not over a Lincoln. There certainly were others, 
Um, but in so many ways, um, and, and so their, their differences were really more superficial than fundamental. Interesting because, you know, a lot of times we think about leadership and, uh, you know, you might, you know, list qualities or talk about an individual that was a leader. Here are two leaders that work together um, and the, the act and the act of working together demonstrated leadership qualities is what you're saying. Um, Be interesting also to compare people over time that perhaps had similar leadership qualities, uh, perhaps learned from one learned from their, his, his or her antecedent. Um, but didn't obviously work together because they were in different times. Um, okay, well, look, I mean, it's unfortunate that we're running out of time because uh, Ed Larson, we could be talking about Antarctica or or, or the well, Constitution. Have me back. We can talk about Shackleton's leadership. Yes, love, love to do it. Love to have you back. So thank you very much. And uh, Akil, he even drowned you out at times. <laughs> so there uh, we only go. Only because I let him, because I love him. Uh, yeah, as, well, I, as I love you, Andy. He, he it, it, I agree. It was only because he let me. But he, um, we think so much alike on these matters. And you know, I think it's a great honor. I'm looking across over here out this window, except I should be looking out the other way to see it. I think. But look at look at Yale. Yale just created two new houses. And, and one of them was named for a dead white male, Benjamin Franklin. Yes. That says something. Well, it wasn't without controversy. <laughs> something we could talk about on another occasion. Thank you very much, Ed Larson, and we'll be back next week.